Welcome to episode 10 of Song Chronicles. In this episode, I start my two-part conversation with someone who is truly an international superstar, Gloria Estefan. De mi tierra bella, de mi tierra santa. I first met Gloria when she performed at the White House's 2013 Gershwin Prize Ceremony. And this conversation took place last August from her home in Miami Beach. This is a wide-reaching interview, and in it, Gloria talks about how her new album, Brazil 305, reflects her long-held love for Brazilian music, which started with her mother's music collection. She also reveals the long emotional journey from recording it in 2016 to its final release just last month. We also delve into her past, her family roots in Cuba, their history, and how important her mother and grandmother were in her life. When her mom was a child in Cuba, she won a Shirley Temple contest that nearly brought her to Hollywood. But it was her grandmother who was the one who really urged Gloria to be a performer. Gloria shares stories about her hilarious first time meeting her future husband, Emilio, and shares some secrets to their successful marriage. How the Miami Latin Boys became the Miami Sound Machine, and what her band name idea was. And how the success of their first album, Renacer, in Latin America, but not in the U.S., taught her how fleeting fame can be. We talk about songwriting style, her influences growing up, and we hear the stories behind some of her most meaningful songs. We'll also get a peek into her pandemic playlist. Song Chronicles is proud to present part one of our two-part interview with Gloria Estefan. I'm in Miami Beach in my library where I've spent a lot of time during this pandemic. Doing interviews and promoting your new record. Well, that's recent, but here I also went through a lot of albums and organized stuff. I got in my attic and I took out 30 some years of stuff and threw away things, organized things, and closets that I meant to get to and never had, that nobody can do for you because I'm the one that has to decide what goes and what stays. But no, I love this. I do all the editing here. We did a put on your mask video parody. To, it's so fun. Yeah, I shot it right here. I pulled out a green screen that I had bought two years prior and I set it up right behind me. And my assistant, she was quarantined with me too, Heather. We shot it and edited it here and put it out. Fun was had by all. So you obviously are multi-talented and a lot of skills. You're doing editing and- I love that. Yeah. Well, you create something. You could create something out of nothing when you're editing. Like you've got all these things, you know, your Mm -hmm. material, but literally you can decide how to completely switch something around or give it one sentiment or a different one. That's why I always mix the record with the engineer. I sit every moment of the mix. That's wonderful. First of all, I'm so honored that you're taking the time to talk with me. You and my mom have known each other a long time. I feel like I'm looking at her right now. (laughs) 
Yeah, there is a resemblance there. Just a slight. Yeah, just a slight. I'm half Jerry and half Carol uh, yeah. without the beard. Well, a wonderful mix nonetheless. And it's a pleasure for me to be here. You know, your mom is my idol. She's my first big, huge, looming influence in my life. Well, that's a good place to start because you're a songwriter. And I wanted to know in your background when you were growing up, what was it that gave you the first thought you wanted to be a songwriter? What were you hearing and what made you believe that you could be a songwriter? You know, that's a very interesting question because all of that happened naturally and quite by chance and because of a kismet of meeting Emilio. Okay, since I was young, I wrote parodies. My sister and I, she's way younger than me, but my cousin Mercy and I, who used to play guitar and sing in our room, I actually started taking guitar lessons and her dad was in the Air Force, my dad was in the Army, and we would exchange tapes mm -hmm. on this reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder that my dad had bought for us to send him messages to Vietnam while he was there and him talk back so that my sister wouldn't forget his voice. So we would do these parodies, funny lyrics to songs, and they came very easily. I did a lot of poetry as a child, but I loved so much singing other people's songs, and they, they were really my catharsis, my way of emoting. Later on, when my dad got ill, I would lock myself up in my room with a cassette player and the radio and copy the songs that I love and then figure out the chords, sometimes giving them to my guitar teacher because he would teach me old Cuban songs to sing to my grandma and my mom and I would teach him so he could teach his students pop songs because he wasn't in that bag at all. So when I joined the band at 17, Emilio had the idea that he wanted to do some original music because he thought that it would help our gigs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I'd ever written and I told him, look, I do parodies, I've done poetry, I, I think I could try. So I sat down and attempted to put together now a lyric and a melody with the harmonies with it. And I wrote a song, it was called Tu Amor Conmigo, Your Love With Me. And he loved it. And we recorded it as the B-side to the single that was gonna come out later with a small local label sign us we did the thing so then it was just like a natural process it was a lot of it inspiration but you know i had all these pent-up emotions and squashed desires that i couldn't make come true because of my situation with my dad that all of that was a great catalyst for music because well i'm sure you imagine you write music as well i know you sing it's easier to write from dark places like mm -hmm. and painful places and emotional places and i had plenty of that so um I started writing and I pretty much recorded everything I wrote from that moment on. I never listened to the radio while I was producing or writing music or anything because, you know, you were like sponges. Mm -hmm. But my grandmother was a poet. Both my uncles wrote music. My mom wrote poetry. We had a lot of musicians on both sides of the family. So maybe there's some kind of gene in there somewhere. Yeah. And can you talk about your mother? I'm sorry about her passing. Oh, thank you. Was she a very strong woman and did she give you a message that you could break out of the normal Hispanic traditional roles of child rearing and being at home and supporting the man? Like, where did you see that for yourself in the future coming from a culture that didn't empower that vision? Well, believe it or not, the most radical and forward thinking woman was my grandmother. 
her mother, Consuelo. She was the consummate stage mother. I think maybe, I never got to have this conversation with my grandma, but I bet you that her dream may have been something like that, to be on a stage. She was born in 1905, and her dream growing up while she was in school was to become a lawyer. Imagine a woman to become a lawyer in Cuba, but in fourth grade, they yanked her out of school because she had to go to work, and they put her to work to help her mom ironing and cleaning. She had 12 brothers and sisters. And then her father, who was the chef to two presidents in Cuba, brought her on board at 12 years old. She was cooking in the presidential palace. So my grandma, when she had my mother and saw the incredible talent that my mama had since she was a little baby, she loved being the center of attention. She danced, sang. She was a straight-A student, was always top of her class, and the star of every show in the school. They would always choose her. The choreographer and the head of the music department in her school in Cuba, his twin brother was a Broadway choreographer in New York. So he would literally put on these extravagant shows where my grandma would have all these outfits made. And I have pictures of my mother from the moment she's like five years old in all these different costumes and elaborate get-ups. And my grandma would grab the sheet music for the songs and take her to a songwriting or a, a singing contest on the radio there or this place, that place. And ultimately, my mom won a contest to be Shirley Temple's double in the studios in Hollywood. So my grandma practically had her bags packed. And my grandfather, when he found out that one of the parents had to give up the rights to the kid, and he said, absolutely not. And we're not leaving our homeland and she's not going anywhere. So that kind of put the kibosh on my mom's career. And uh, she eventually got a PhD in education opened her own kindergarten. And then, well, we came here when she married my dad and the whole revolution happened. My mom, I learned from example only because she had to do it too. When my dad got ill, I saw two women handling everything. When we were in Miami alone, that I came, I was two years old and then my dad took off to train for Bay of Pigs, didn't tell my mom where he was going, he couldn't, it was all secret. And then ended up two years of political prisoner in Cuba. I was here alone with my mom and she was like the leader of the pack. She moved all of her friends from Cuba that had kids my age into these two little strips of apartments that she found that were brand new. They bought a car for 50 bucks. I was living in a commune of women and they would do everything together, a support system. So early in my life, I saw her doing it all. My dad came back, he joined the army, then he went to Vietnam, came back, Agent Orange poisoning. Again, the women in the family were the ones handling everything. At that point, my grandfather had passed. My grandmother would cook, take care of my dad. Eventually, I would take care of my dad when I came back from school and my little sister, so my mom, could work and then go to school at night to revalidate her teaching credentials. So I saw it happening, but, and my mom loved me to sing and I would sing for other people. But I think since my mom was the diva and my personality was really super low key, like my dad and chill and I didn't like being the center of attention. I don't think she ever imagined that I could possibly do this. And when I joined the band, she was not a happy camper because imagine my dad is ill. She can't control me. I'd be traipsing around the city with a bunch of guys. And she was concerned that I'd give up school, that I'd be sucked into this world of Hollywood or God knows what was in her mind. And she was not happy about that at all. 
And I think deep down inside, she kind of felt that maybe I couldn't handle because she knew my personality. I had a good 10 years to get used to everything before it exploded worldwide, which were important. And I do like to do things well. So what I learned was that the more I let the audience see who I was, the easier it was for me and more natural. And it appealed much more to the audience because they saw honesty and, you know, relaxed. But yeah, both those women were incredibly influential watching what they did. But my grandma was the one that told me when I was about 12 years old, she had this business that she started in her house with cooking and like a club for the little league men that brought their kids in the park behind her. And she would bring these men, a producer that she found out he produced records and make me sing for him. And I'd go, Grandma, you know, I don't think I can do this. I, I, I don't feel comfortable. And she said, this is your gift. It's going to land in your lap. And I hope you're smart enough that day to say yes, because you won't be happy unless you do what you are meant to do on this earth. And when the opportunity came to join the band, I remembered her and she was still there. She reminded me very clearly and kind of went against my mom's wishes and joined the band. That's just a great story. And it's a beautiful message to people too. The more you're yourself, the more vulnerable you are, the less you're trying to cover up and be something else. That's when you really connect with people. Absolutely. They know, you know, it's like when you hear a song, you hear the honesty in it. They may not know what it is about it, but the song that really reach people, there's an honesty to that emotion that you can't fake. Yeah, I love that message. So was it originally the Miami Rhythm Boys and they were in Spanish at first? Well, it was actually Miami Latin Boys. So when I joined, I think once Emilio saw that I was going to stick around and things were working well, which was about, let's see, I joined in um, the summer of 75. And by 76, we were releasing our first album. Mm -hmm. uh, so we decided, okay, we're not just boys. we got to change the name. And a small local label that signed us, uh, Audio Latino, who had connections with RCA in Latin America, they kind of gave us the, I wanted just big called Miami, but you can't incorporate the name of a city. You have to, it has to be something else. So he came up with the sound machine and I, I told Emilio, I go, I don't like this. We're organic. We're not a machine, but it became an incredibly lucky name. And uh, we recorded the album half in English, half in Spanish. We were a little ahead of ourselves there, but that was our plan all along. We mm -hmm. were bilingual. But the song that became a big hit in South America was Renacer, a Spanish language tune. So things started growing and we were literally playing like a 50,000 seat stadium in Latin America and coming back and doing a wedding with 200 people people in Miami, which taught me a lot about fame. <laughs> it taught me a lot. A lot of humility. Know? Yeah. And, and about fame, how it, it really shows you that it's something that it's not intrinsic. They give it to you and they can take it away. And it's something that you better not base your, you know, your self-worth on because it's really just, you have, it's nice that you get known by a lot of people because that means they're going to hear your music and go to your shows and stuff. But it's definitely something that is ethereal and can go away just as fast as it comes. What do you think when you came into the Miami Latin Boys and you came in basically as a background singer at first, right? Yeah, they had no singers. They had the bass player would sing a song, then they'd all sing something together. So somebody had called Emilio to a friend of mine's house, a guy, and he was in the brother school because I went to an all-girl mm -hmm. uh, Catholic high school and he was in the boys' school. And mm -hmm. we used to play at masses together. So he wanted to put together a band for one night just to celebrate this 
they, they used to call them encounter groups. Mm-hmm. The parents would go off on a spiritual retreat and then they'd come back all reborn or whatever. And they wanted to celebrate it. So his dad worked at Bacardi and he said, look, there's a guy there that has a band. I'm going to call him to give you some pointers. So I remember I was sitting on the floor and next to the piano and somebody knocks on the door and they open the door. And the first thing I see are these pair of legs, great legs, by the way, you know, <laughs> nice legs and an accordion. And he was in shorts, so it looked like he was naked momentarily. <laughs> and those shorts had been made by his mother out of what I assume was some kind of upholstery material, because I still remember them to this day. They were <laughs> thick and brown like a couch. So <laughs> I sat there, quiet, shy girl, you know, watching him. He was energy. He walked into that room like, boom, kind of like my mom's energy, right? Um And we played what we were preparing for the thing. He made some comments. Then he played his accordion for us. He told us a whole spiel about how he was going to play for the mayor. And like, uh, because Emilio's a great promoter. And and he left. And that was it. So that summer, this was in May uh, of 75. That summer, my mom drags me to a wedding of one of my dad's army buddy's daughter that I grew up with in South Carolina. And we were always late. My mom was late to everything. So we missed the ceremony. We walk into the reception and I go, wait a minute. I see a guy playing do the hustle on the accordion. I go, whoa, that's very brave, first of all. And it was super charismatic. You know, for me, I never went anywhere. So it's this magical night. Everybody, the couple in love, the, the, the dancing, the music, the lights. And this guy that I, I go, wait a minute, I know this guy. We run into each other in a doorway. He goes, you're that girl that sang that day. You want to sit in with the band? We don't have singers. I go, well, and my mom listening in. Yeah, sing for them. Because she would make me sing with my guitar when when I was a kid. So we found these two Cuban standards that we both knew. Because I knew all the Cuban music from the past. And of course, I got a standing ovation. He asked me to join the band that night, but I said no. And then he tracked me down two weeks later and said, look, we do this for fun. You don't have to quit school. I told him I was, I had two jobs at the time, even before starting school full time. So when I came into the band, I learned all the Cuban stuff that they knew, like the classics. I learned that I had a really good tempo and I could play percussion that I never really had done before that. And then I brought in my influence. We learned ballads for me. Disco was starting that I could do really well. And we started creating these two worlds of music that came together. And when we started writing this stuff, we had that vocabulary where we could choose. Now, the reason there's a girl with me in the first Miami Sound Machine albums, that's my cousin Mercy, who I used to exchange tapes with. And when I told my mom that I was going to join the band, she had a fit. And Mercy was really about, she wanted to do this kind of thing. So I told Emilio, hey, look, I'm not doing this for money. What would you think if my cousin came along with me? And he goes, no, I, I, you know, I wasn't planning that. I go, look, honestly, it's not going to cost you anything. I'm going to split whatever you give me with her. And, you know, it'll be nice. We can do harmony. We do all these things. So then my cousin Mercy started with me in the Miami Cell Machine at that point. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, you were, you were like a reluctant pop star. You weren't walking into it like, I want to be the center of attention at all. Not at all. I was yeah. that first rehearsal in Emilio's apartment because they had a nine piece band in an apartment this big and I was with my back against the wall my mom my grandma and my sister went with me and the rehearsals were so loud it was an apartment complex that everybody would have a party every time they had a rehearsal 
because they had no choice. It was either enjoy it, the music, and, you know, dance and have a good time, or, you know, they couldn't stop it because, and a lot of them were family that Emilio knew and whatnot. So, yeah, I, I was I was freaking out, but I enjoyed the rehearsals so much. It was so fulfilling for me to work on arrangements. Hey, let's try this, because all my life it had been me and my guitar. And to have that opportunity to have a band that I could now create, not just, you know, music and sing, but be a part of creating arrangements and trying different things. It was really fun. It was, I loved it. The performances at the beginning, especially, I really had to like push myself and I would stay back. I, I would never be in front of the band. Emilio would be with his congas in the front and I would be like, step back from that. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it, it was a process for me. I'm going to jump around a, a bunch yeah. because there's so many questions I want to ask. Of course. Um, one question that really comes to mind is that post-success in your life, it's really rare. It's very rare in Hispanic culture, but it's it's rare in an Anglo culture as well for there to be a traditional marriage where the woman and the husband are both successful, empowered, and the marriage and the family stay stable. There isn't power struggle. You both work together amazingly, but you also do your separate things really well. And, and that's a really rare quality. And, you know, maybe I'd have to talk to Emilio to find out what his <laughs> side of that, the story is and what he does to contribute to that but you know I know that culturally women tend to feel that well first of all they don't have the same opportunities as men across the board in Hispanic and English culture but there's also this feeling that if the woman is successful it's going to limit her chances of finding a stable loving husband. So what is the secret? What can you tell people about how that works and why it works and or the work it takes to nourish that and keep that going? Right, of course. You know, I've thought about this a lot because I get that question, but I it never been framed quite in that way. And you're right. Traditional roles, particularly in the Hispanic culture, is the woman follows the man and supports him in whatever he does. Although when we had to leave Cuba, everybody had to go to work. Women, men, you had to survive. So that changed things a lot in Hispanic households. Now, why do I think Emilio and I work? There are several reasons. Number one, we're a balance. We're not the same personality-wise. He is electric, energetic. He's a motivator. He's somebody that is incredibly positive and will shoot out of bed at four in the morning to do everything. It's not that I'm not, because I'm very positive too, but I'm very chill. So if we were both like him, we'd be dead of heart attacks by now. If we were both like me, we'd still be playing guitar on our couch. So at the moments where one or the other has to empower and help the other one, we're there. He's the biggest feminist I know. So that helps a lot. He was a wonderful son. I knew he was going to be a great father and husband. He adored his mother. So women have always been very strong in his life and an influence. He has no qualms about women in positions of power. So the ego, like you mentioned, has also been a big thing. In our relationship, there are no egos. Yes, we're both very strong-willed and we have a strong personality, but it's never been mine is more important or I go first. We take care of each other. And in a relationship, if 
both of you are watching out for the other one, then you're both being taken care of. And on different occasions, I've had, he's had to support me in what I'm doing. At the beginning of our career, my son didn't want to go with us anywhere. So I tried. He quit. He stopped performing in the band so he could stay home with Naib and, and also be on the outside to control things. And when I came back from that, I told him either we all go or nobody goes. I'm not going to miss my son's life. But he had no problem stepping back at that moment. When I had the accident, he didn't want there to be pressure on me to feel like I had to get back out and work because we were a team and we were always working together on my stuff. So he started immediately working with other artists to try to give me the freedom to come back if I wanted to, when I wanted to. And I then supported him in everything he did, even when he knocked me out of the number one position with one of his artists. <laughs> Alejandro Fernandez knocked my song that he had also produced out of the number one position, but I was happy for him. So there's not a battle. We are a team in every sense of the word. And then of course, when the things that are of real value in life, your morals, your priorities, we're on the same page. We rarely differ in business or in music. We're usually him and I against the world. We've fought everybody, but him and I always are on the same page. So it helps when you don't argue, when there's not a lot to argue about. And we've both tried to be extremely supportive for each other. I think it's rare to find. It's a rare combo. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel we were destined to be, I didn't think I'd get married at all. So imagine to get married the day after I turned 21 years old. He was my first and only. And I never had a doubt. I tell people that he says, you don't know any better. How do you know what you never tried? anybody else I go well I don't have to have hamburger to know I have filet mignon at home so <laughs> you know yeah he fulfills all those things I'm not you know curious about it because he really does and it wasn't planned so I think right. we do have a very unique and rare and he makes me laugh every day sometimes without even meaning to because he's super absent-minded and he That's doesn't care like when you laugh about it He's very secure in his way. So it, he's a great guy. What can I tell you? Oh, that's great. And I'm sure he saw that with you early on enough to choose you. Well, thank God I speak Emilio, though, because it took me a while to learn how he talks. And I'll never forget when he finally asked me out because he was my boss for a year. Nobody wanted to touch that to mess up, you know, the right. profession that was going so well. And I remember um, he says to me, we're in the car driving from somewhere and he goes, you know, you could improve 95%. And I'm looking at him like, what 5% are you dating me for? Now, at this point, I already <laughs> knew what he meant. And it was because he would see me in the rehearsals that I was so open and free and relaxed. And then when I got on stage, he would see me, you know, clam up a little bit. And he knew that there was so much there that he's seen from the rehearsal, but he didn't know exactly how to say it, you know? So I really had to learn to decipher Emilio speak. And we have, because that could have been a big problem had I not. That's just beautiful. That's great. He's funny. Do you have songs of yours that, I mean, you've written a, a, a lot of songs, but I, I'm a songwriter too. So, you know, some songs that I wrote even a long time ago have outlasted the way that they were recorded, you know, whatever the flavors of the times were in the recording styles, you know, they'd last after picking up a guitar and they still hold together as a song I love. And it, it, I always feel like it's this great gift. It's like my younger self is coming to keep me company and has some wisdom to give me now in this form of this song or songs. I'm wondering in your catalog of songs you've written, do you have any that are particularly precious to you that feel close to your heart that you could sit and play on a guitar and, and mean a lot to you that you're really grateful came through you? Oh my gosh, what a great way to put it. 
You know what? Yes. And funny enough, I don't usually listen to my stuff at all at home. But during this pandemic, and since I was putting out this record, I decided to revisit some of the old stuff that we've done, uh, which the fans do constantly and throw back at me. But one of the first songs I wrote, which I wrote for Emilio, is called Un Amor Especial. It's in Spanish. And when I listen to the lyrics now, it's almost like if I had written them now, because I'm talking about a lifelong love like you've been uh, you've been a very special love a total commitment like and i talk i could have written it yesterday but in hindsight there it was wishful thinking but i wrote it in such a secure way that it's almost like if i had a, like a certainty about emilio and i and the relationship another one that comes to mind is my song my the song the song I wrote for my son, Naib, which is called Naib Song, I Am Here For You. And uh, it was on the album that I recorded after my accident. And the, the world at the time was in such turmoil for a million other reasons. And I played it, I had it put on a little music box piano to give to him. And I play it for my grandson. And when I'm listening to this song, it's like, we're in the same place. My son is going to be 40. He was the age my grandson is now. He was eight when I wrote this song. And it continues to be true. The, you know, I am here for you. You are here for me. It's an ongoing process. You know, I will take care of you. You will take care of me if we're going to make some progress. And it talks about lately, my son, I've been confused. Don't know what to tell you because it's all such bad news. Lately, my son, I've been discouraged. I look around and it fills me with worry. What kind of world can I offer to you? And I'm thinking, oh my God, what have we done in the last four decades that this continues to hold so completely true? And those things, you know, that's the beauty of songwriting. You etch something at a moment that hopefully will stand the test of time. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens. We're blessed and privileged to, to be able to do something like that and to speak words for other people when they can't or don't have them. It's really communication, which was one of my majors in college, you know, like and psychology. Psychology. So imagine, I like it's a wonderful way for me to have continued my career that I was going to be a psychologist, but through communication in lyrics, I think a lot, and I'm sure you do too. I mean, I don't know, but w when you write a song, don't you think about how people are going to feel maybe when they listen, the day they listen to those words that you're going to have an influence on their mind and their hearts? I tend to do it a little differently because my parents were the kind of songwriters that were geared for chart success. And they started off writing for other people. So they would, you know, be fluid enough to think how that particular artist would want to come across. And they did it well, my God. <laughs> yeah, they sure did. For me, it's this spiritual need. It's the equivalent of going to church. And, you know, I sometimes will teach songwriting. And, and the thing I find myself saying a lot is that it's really important to slow everything down and that the words you're writing are meant to be sung. They're meant to come out of your body. They're not words on a page. They're not poetry. They're not prose. So that's really what informs my songwriting. It, it goes through my heart and I have this feeling of truth. I look at it like a truth puzzle. And I always am smarter at the end of writing a song. I always have more wisdom about something I feel by the time I've finished the song than I had when I started it. And that's really my calling to write. And it's wonderful. I have a question for you because I've also found through the years, I mean, my first songs that I ever wrote were all inspiration based, right? But there is a raft to this as your parents 
I'm sure are well aware because they, like you said, they were the craft of the situation. And I have found that usually for me, the songs that are inspiration, I feel almost like they came through me, mm -hmm. not from me. They mm -hmm. come from a different place. Most of my songs have been written between midnight and six in the morning because for me, my kids are asleep. My husband's asleep. The phone isn't ringing. The channels are more somehow feel lighter on my side of the world because people are sleeping. So a lot of their energies are out of the way. And uh, I've written a lot of songs at that time. And it was a lot of inspiration. Then as time progressed, I also realized, and this Emilio had a lot to do with, because he has this uncanny ability that if I'm iffy about one word in a song or a line that somehow, you know how it is, you write this whole thing and you love it all, but you still haven't found that perfect thing, but you go, oh, this is good, let me, and I play it for him and he'd go, oh my God, that's a great song. He goes, that line, and he, he has no qualms about calling it. He goes, I don't like that line that or that one word. He zeroes in on the one thing I had a doubt about. And then craft comes into play now too, because you can always do a better job unless it's inspiration that to me, like I have no doubt, this is it. Boom, it came out. 15 minutes and anything for you was like that. Coming out of the dark was like that. Always tomorrow. Usually the songs that are, you know, talking about some greater uh, emotions or, or ideals or thoughts. But craft also is important. You could always do a better job. And, and I always tell anybody that asks me, and I tell my daughter, I go, don't settle. Don't ever settle. You will know more than anyone if there's something about it that can be better. And you can lie to yourself and say, oh yeah, that's a great song and whatnot, but you will know. There will be that one little word or line that somehow isn't perfection. And I've learned now through the years to strive for that goal where every line is perfect, every word is right. And that took me a while to do. I agree with that. I have that happen all the time where after I write a song, I remember I used to live in London and I would be on the, the tube or the bus and I would recite and revisit in my mind the whole song and then I'd get to a syllable or a word or a phrase and it would irritate me. There would be something that, nah. and I have learned, I mean, people will often, especially in the studio, that's the worst. In the studio, when you're hearing a mix and something isn't right and there's this group think of people trying to talk themselves out of the doubt that they're feeling. And I know that every time I have talked myself out of a doubt or a line that didn't feel right. Every time I hear that song, even if it's 10 years later, 15 years later, the same thing will always bother me. Right. Pay attention to craft. I've learned to listen now. I That's where exactly. craft comes in. Yeah. The craft. And you know what? When I'm in the mix, I see shapes. I don't know how you'd see it, but I will see in my inner mind or mind's eye, whatever, the mix has a shape. And usually when there's a problem, there's a jarring thing that doesn't fit, that's out of the picture somehow. So it's, it's funny. I also have very olfactory memory for music. If something really hit me at a moment, I will smell what I smelled at the moment. Like every time I hear Seals and Crofts, Summer Breeze, I smell fresh mown grass because I was heading on my way to a tutoring session. Very excited because for the SAT, I was going to start high school and I was full of all these great feelings and the windows were down and this song comes on and I've been listening to it recently through COVID because it gives me this amazing feeling of promise and hope and future ahead and whatnot. And somebody was cutting the grass and it came into the car 
and I will smell fresh mown grass every time I hear that song. Or I will smell laundromat every time I hear Ferry Cross the Mersey by Jerry and the Pacemakers. I was in Texas pulling up to a laundromat with my mom. I was six years old and this song comes on the radio and I'm like blown away. My hair stands on end. I'm a kid, I'm a baby. And I told my mom, no, no, I want to finish the song. And there it was. I realized now it was a bolero because the Brits were really into Latin music at the time. And it's got the, you know, maracas and a bongo. And now I realize it touched my little Cuban soul with this melancholy thing. And it got all wrapped up into laundromat linen. I love that. What attracted you to going to Bahia for your new record and getting those musicians and capturing that sound? Okay, I've loved Brazilian music since my mom and her eclectic music collection. She had the greats of Cuba. She had the standards from America that I still listen to Nat King Cole and Johnny Mathis. was over the moon when I got to do a duet with Johnny Mathis. I was so thrilled. But also she had Carmen Miranda, who was huge in Cuba. And she would see her movies and had her records. And then ultimately that big Brazilian wave in the 60s with Jobim and, and all these amazing writers from Brazil with this big wave of music. Sergio Mendes with Brazil 66, which is why I named the album Brazil 305. Kind of in my mind's eye, it's reminiscent of this Brazil 66. Yeah, 305 is the area code of Miami. So it's kind of like a bridge. In the first album we recorded, I recorded a Brazilian song called Malvina by Antonio Carlos and Joe Caffey because I would always look at who wrote these things. I would pour over all the credits on an album cover and sit there and stare at it while I was listening like I did to your mom's album that came out that same year when I was about to go to high school for me in eighth grade and I would stare at her and the cat in the picture and <laughs> read everything that was in there and wonder about how this woman could have written all these things that were making me feel so much. So I recorded Malvina on that first album. In 83, we did a whole album called Rio, where again, I took, I wrote Spanish lyrics to these big Brazilian hits of the time by Rita Lee, Lanza Perfume, I had a big hit by La Conmigo. There was one of the first rap tunes I ever heard, Wilson Simonal, he was the first African, Afro-Brazilian to cross into the pop charts in Brazil. I'm talking late 60s, early 70s. And we did a whole album based on this because I loved it. I made the band learn when I joined the band. I had them learn Maishkenada, Chica de Ipanema, then later Desafinado, Corcovado, like these classics, because I told Emilio, hey, we could branch out. This is, people love this kind of stuff and we have a whole other vibe and people did. They loved it. We could cover so many moods in this gig band, you know, Cubans, right? So uh, I always loved it. We would experiment with samba on tour because we had all these percussionists and we would just break into these different rhythms. So in 2016, Afo Verde, the head of Sony International, and he had been head of Sony Brazil forever. He's a fan of mine also. And he, he knew my trajectory with Brazilian sounds. And he said, what do you think if we were to go to Brazil and actually record and reimagine your songs in Brazilian rhythms. We'll take a bunch of them and literally go and explore all the rhythms of Brazil, not just samba and bossa, but different things, pagoji and some de mesa, some de roda. And I was over the moon with the idea. I said, as long as I can include some original tunes. So this was all set to come out in 2017. I had recorded the music. I came home from Brazil. I played it for my mom in her kitchen and she had me sing the tunes because she was so excited about that. And then that week she took ill mm. and ended up in the hospital out of nowhere because she was doing great. And we spent 33 days in the hospital to the bitter end thinking that she would make it through. 
And, you know, she did. So months later, when I tried, you know, for Sony that had been waiting for this record, I tried to go in to sing, but I, I couldn't sing. I couldn't. It was so tied to memories with my mom. And I, I was grieving so heavily. I didn't want that on the record. And you also know, as I'm sure, that whatever the vibe is in the studio, it gets on the record somehow. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't like arguments or, you know, trauma in the studio. I, it's my happy place. It's the place I feel the best and most. It's my cocoon. And I make sure that the feeling in that studio is, you know, what it should be. So I waited over a year to be able to get back in and record. And when I did, I was so ready. And my mom helped me through the process. And I was able to put the joy that was intended for that record. So it was supposed to come out last fall. COVID happened. We switched it to February. COVID hits Florida hard. And then George Floyd situation, which out of respect, I didn't want to take attention away or even focus on an album when so much important things, so many things were happening and then finally on June 12th the day before we released the single because I told Sony and I made that the single it was going to be Rhythm is going to get you and I said no I absolutely need to put some joy out into the universe I need to balance all these feelings that we're all feeling and it needs to be with love which is cuando hay amor when there is love and it was there in Bahia where Samba was born those Bayanas that are dancing around me in the video they descend from the original Bayanas that would improvise songs washing clothes in that lake, Abaete. And then one of them, Tia Chiata, opened a little restaurant, reminding me of my grandmother, and created a food and music thing that her sister then took to Rio. And this was the birth of Samba. They were from the Yoruba tribe of Africa that went both to Bahia and to Cuba. And because of the European influences, was were the different fusions that they had but again the message is that we're one that music really is the thing that bridges i don't really hear about a lot of people arguing or fighting over music one over the other or you know it's not like religion or politics or things that divide us in my experience it's always been a unifying force so when I've celebrated the different styles of music, it's because I have a very personal co connection to that music or it has made me grow or gave me so much enjoyment and that I feel comfortable doing it. And that Afro-ness that's in the original conga and rhythm, it's Afro-Cuban rhythms from the ceremony of Lukumi. It's not my religion, but it's a very big cultural part of Cuba. So I find so many ties and so many similarities, and it was a blast to explore. And we did a whole documentary about that that will air probably in early next year. I just got chills, I want to tell you. And when that happens to me, I always call it the chill of truth. You know? oh, I mean, I got awesome. chills at the last part of you saying that, because what I was going to say, and in hearing that you talk about uniting with music as opposed to dividing with music and the fusion of multiple roots and styles and influences and how it's like the metaphor of an orchestra. You have all these different sounds and together it makes an amazing sound and nowhere else in our world does that take place right now. Uh, and I think that's what gave me chills is knowing that you did that and your record when it came out shot to the top of the Latin charts and it's exploding everywhere. I think it speaks to the hunger for, well, first of all, it's such a vital record at a time when people feel so, it's almost a blessing in disguise that you held off on putting the record out because the hunger and need for the vitality in it is greater than, you know, maybe it would have been if you put it out before. I agree because it, music finds its best moment if you listen, because I could have been adamant and forced myself into the studio and just sang it and I wouldn't have had my heart into it. I would have been sad for my mom. That would 
have been on the record. And if it would have come out, then it wouldn't have had the kind of attention because we are hungry for joy. You know, we need joy somehow from somewhere to help us through these moments. And I feel honored to be a musician at a time when we put vibes into the universe that are healing and, you know, the frequencies of music, they soothe. They can really move your mood and move your music changes my mood immediately. And it's funny because I'm putting on more music now than I ever did at home before. But now I find I, I need it. I need to feel things. And depending on my mood, I'll listen to a million different things. So, and still your mom is one of them, by the way. So what are you listening to? Tapestry, because it takes me right back to that moment. And like I said, like the reason I started listening to Summer Breeze, somehow I feel the need to connect with my younger self. And at a moment where everything was possible and I looked at the world through a child's eyes of everything is possible, everything is good. People in power know what they're doing. Somebody knows better than I how to handle things. And, you know, adulthood comes and it's a big wake-up call in many ways. And then it's our job to give those feelings that we had as a kid to our children despite knowing so much and so many things that happened. So I've, I listened a lot also to Nat King Cole. I went back to his records. I love Pink, so she moves me. I downloaded Alanis's record, the new one, but I still go back to Jagged Little Pill, mm -hmm. which I've listened to a few times now. Uh, I'll listen to Cachao, Celia Cruz's early Cuban records. Not even the one that she made here, but the one she made in Cuba early on and the, the old crooners like Olga Guillo that was kind of overwhelming feeling. And I love how the recordings sound. At the time, everything was live. There was no multi-tracking. There was no nothing. So you can literally hear the band in the room. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, I just listen to a lot of stuff and usually stuff that makes me feel good or reminds me of a feeling that was great. It's amazing this time to go through the past and have an eye and an ear for discovery. Well, the good news is that despite the fact that it's really killed the money-making part for an artist, Apple Music or these kind of services, I have literally found things that anything I think about is on there. I don't know how, but it's there. Because, for example, I was at our home in Vero Beach and I wanted to hear the songs of Agustin Lara. He was one of the top songwriters of Mexico. He made huge hits for all these artist and it's going to be his 50th anniversary and I know that there's talk among some people that were letting me know about doing a, a recording of his stuff so I went back and I listened to his original recordings of his songs all I did was type in his name and it had everything so I'll get my boombox I connect to my phone or hook it up to the stereo system anything that I want to listen to is right there so I have my grandson loves to play vinyls because he loves the ritual and there's something about that sound, the crackle and the pop and that needle on the on the vinyl. I wore out quite a few copies of Tapestry and Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life and Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Those were seminal in my life. I mean, they were like pouring over every lyric, over everything, wondering about songs I had no clue or didn't understand, especially on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, because I was a kid. So you're, you're hearing all the young girls love Alice and you're hearing all these really edgy things that I'm wondering, whoa, what is this about? And it, it's just music is such an amazing, beautiful part of life. I feel really privileged to be able to live in it and share it. Uh -huh. 
That was Gloria Estefan, and we're going to be talking to her further in our episode next week, episode 11 of Song Chronicles. We'll be talking more about how female artists are presented in the media, and she'll talk about some of the new things that she's doing now while under quarantine. If you're enjoying Song Chronicles, we love the feedback. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We're so happy to hear from you and to let other people know about these stories and the histories behind some of the great recordings and performers. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with part two of Gloria Estefan next week. 